Well, as you can tell, this is an exciting time in our youth group. It's an exciting time for all of us. We're proud of, of our seniors. We're excited to see them go out into the world. I know it's certainly an exciting time in their lives as, as they're graduating, as they're uh, making many, many important decisions and, and really deciding who they want to be. And I'm remembering those times and remembering them brought up many memories. I'm sure it probably does for you too. And I thought I'd share this picture of me as a freshman in college. Uh, so <laughs> this is me at uh, my now wife's high school prom, actually. Um, and as you can see, still very much figuring out who I wanted to be. Uh, making some unwise decisions here, like that haircut. Uh, and those glasses. Uh, I actually had to wear those glasses, and I had to take three bottles of special eye drops for six months because I got a flesh-eating amoeba trapped in my eye. So it was another unwise decision. Students, adults, if you wear contacts, contact solution matters. Okay, don't use tap water. Don't do it. I hope looking at that picture, you can laugh at me and be encouraged that it's normal to still be figuring out who you are and what you want to do with your life. In fact, we're all still figuring out, to some extent, who we want to be. Every day is another part of that story. Every day we live and act on this earth, we write another chapter in the story of who we are. And this morning, not just for our seniors, but for all of us, I want to ask you, who are you? Who are you becoming? Who do your actions show you to be? The most important thing we want to see our seniors graduate with is a belief in the gospel and an identity centered in Christ. And we're going to be in Romans 12, verses 9 through 16 this morning, if you want to go ahead and start turning there. And, and Paul here is going to describe for us what our life looks like when our identity is centered in Christ. And unsurprisingly, he has a lot to say about love. And many people sadly hate on Christians for our lack of love. We're called sexists, we're called bigots, we're called racists, pretty much every name under the sun. And sadly, there are many who are claiming Christianity who really are those things, who really are hateful. Like the, the Westboro Baptists of the world who are picketing funerals and weddings alike with signs filled with hateful and judgmental messages that they're hoping the media picks up on. But despite their best efforts and despite the efforts of people like them, the reality is that the biblical view of humanity is the most loving. It is the most inclusive. It is the most woke, to use a term that will make our youth cringe this morning, which is kind of my job as a youth pastor. Um, and why is that? Why are those things true about our biblical view of humanity? Because of the Imago Dei. Because of the image of God that we believe every single human being carries, every single human being alive has God-given value. And moreover, the incredible gift of Christ's sacrifice is offered freely to who? To all to accept. 
And as John writes in Revelation 7, 9, he says, In heaven there is a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Paul's going to say in our passage this morning, if we believe that, then one of the main ways that we live that out is the way that we love And if we know our Bible, we know the importance of loving others, right? Jesus himself tells us is one of the two most important commandments in the Bible, right? Love your neighbor as yourself next to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it's not surprising that he would have a lot to say about love. What might be a little surprising to you this morning is that this is actually the first time in all of Romans here in chapter 12 that Paul actually talks about loving others because he's spent the first part of his letter detailing the love God has for us as demonstrated by him sending his son to die on our behalf. And he says, if we are in Jesus Christ, then we are his. And God's love will never, never, never let us go. There is no circumstance, there is no tribulation, no hardship, no suffering, no distress, no high, no low, no power in existence that can separate us from God's love if we are in Jesus. So Paul lays out this incredible love God has shown for us in the gospel. And then in chapter 12, he turns to how we are called to live in this world as Christians in light of that love. So that's where we are this morning. And church, this is our mission statement here at Dallas Bible Church, to love all and help all follow Jesus. If you visit dallasbible.org slash our mission, it says at the very top, we're committed to leaving the confines of comfort to love a world that's grown skeptical of religion, but still longs for the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus says it like this in John 13, 35. He says, they will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. So this morning, we're looking at, at how Paul tells us to do just that. How do we love all? And it begins with him saying, Love that is genuine. That's what he says right off the bat. Let love be genuine. And here in the Greek, when he says, let love be genuine, he actually says, let love be anupokritos. That's two words combined together. Anu, meaning without. And then hypocrites, which is obviously in English where we get the word hypocrisy. But in Paul's context, as he uses that term, that's actually a term that refers to Greek theater. The Hippocrates was an actor in Greek theater, and he would wear a mask. Paul says, let love be without the Hippocrates. What he's saying is, as Christians, our love cannot be us acting apart. Our love cannot be wearing a mask. Let love be without hypocrisy. John Stott says it this way, love is not theater. And sadly, I think some of the most theater can occur in the church when it comes to love. Now, I don't mean our church specifically necessarily. I'm just talking about church in general. Church interactions can sometimes be filled with fake niceties, right? With this niceness, an outward politeness that we feel like we have to put on that may be hiding our true feelings, 
And sometimes we might feel like we need to kind of drum up this, this niceness as Christians. Like, I have to be smiling. I have to be excited. I have to be warm. I have to be welcoming. And don't hear me saying any of those things are bad. Right? It's not wrong to be nice or polite. But the problem lies when we feel like we have to force those things or fake those things. Love is not a sentiment. Love is not a feeling. What Paul is going to show us right here this morning, as we're going to read on, is that love is actually action. Love is something you do, not something you feel. And we can fall into this trap of focusing too much on our feelings. One way this happens for me sometimes, it's happened in my life in the past, I can still struggle with this, is in worship, corporate singing on the Lord's day. If we're not careful... It can become too much about what we're feeling. Are we getting those goosebumps? Are we getting those Holy Spirit tingles? Right? We can wrongly think of those feelings as a thermometer for our relationship with God. I'm just not feeling it this morning. What's wrong with me? God, what have, what have I done wrong? Why are you mad at me? Of course, God is bigger than our feelings, and our feelings aren't always accurate. So real worship happens when we set our hearts and minds on God despite how we feel. Whether or not we have all the energy this morning, whether or not our voice is warmed up or the song is our favorite, in fact, I think you could argue the most worship is taking place in us when it's hardest, when we're doing it despite our hang-ups or our distracting thoughts or our sorrows that may be hanging over us in the background. And it's the same with love. Christian love is not a feeling. Love is one-faced. Love is consistent. Love is an action we carry out despite our feelings. So that's a really important clarification I want to make this morning. We're called to love others when we aren't feeling love toward them. And we won't always feel love. We won't always be 100% on board with what God has in front of us and who God has in front of us. And I think Jesus himself shows us this in the Garden of Gethsemane, that our feelings aren't always going to line up with our actions. If you guys know this scene, his time has come. All he has left to do is to go to the cross and die and be resurrected, right? And in this moment, as he's kind of confronting the task ahead of him, the task that's ahead of him, it's pretty clear that he's not exactly overcome with warm sentimentality towards humanity, right? He's not, he's not exactly bubbling over with, with niceness and politeness in this moment. What does he say? He says, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. In other words, if there's any other way, Lord, let's go with that plan. I'm not excited about what comes next. Then what does he say? He says, nonetheless, not my will, but yours. And of course, despite his momentary struggling with the enormity of his task in his humanity, he is nonetheless perfectly faithful to walk out his cosmic calling, showing his love for the world, demonstrating it, acting it out. To act in Christian love towards someone means we don't hide 
from our feelings about that person. We turn those feelings over to God. If need be, we have a conversation with that person, but we act on that person's behalf despite our feelings. And in today's culture, people have a real problem being corrected or being told what's good for them, even Christians. Okay, we love to pit the law and love against each other. It's like the law, that was the Old Testament, right? But then Jesus shows up and changes everything, and now we can be all about love. And the problem is that everyone has a different definition of what love even looks like. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The only way we can truly love one another is by doing it the way God commands, which we're looking at this morning. And that means calling each other to what God commands. The truths of God's word. Those are our compass. And real love is not letting you do what you want. It's not letting you get away with whatever you want to get away with because I feel the need to be nice to you because I want to be polite because I don't want to be that guy and so I'm not going to call you out. That's not real love. Love is calling you where you need to be called. Love is being willing to confront problems and sins in one another. So I want to share an illustration with you. You may have heard this before to demonstrate this. Let's imagine we have two fathers and two sons, okay, nine, ten years old. First father tells his son, listen, I know you're going to go out and play. I want you to play wherever you want to play because I love you, and I just want you to be happy. So you go wherever you want to go and do your thing. Second father says, listen, son, I saw you in the street. You cannot play in the street. It is not safe to play in the street. If you go in the street, again, you will be punished. Which is more loving? Right? The second father cares for his son. He doesn't want to see him get hit by a car. God is our creator. He loves us. He wants what's best for us. And his commands to us are the way to our best life, to eternal fulfillment. So God's word is a fence inside which we are truly free. The fence makes us free to enjoy what is good for us, protected against what is not good for us. The fence enables us to be free. And love in today's culture is not telling anyone where their fence should be. Letting everyone build their own fence however they think, and you're actually hating on someone if you tell them anything about their own fence. But God tells us in Proverbs 3.12, he disciplines those he loves. And 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is a fool. The way Paul words this here in verse 9, let love be genuine. It implies that there's a way to do love that is not Genuine. There's a kind of false love that avoids the truth. And as he goes on to say, abhor what is evil, we see something really interesting here. In other words, be angered by what is evil, be disgusted by evil, hate evil. And here we learn something that flies directly in the face of our culture's approach to love, where we're expected to tolerate everything. We're expected to be okay with whatever makes a person happy. But Paul calls us to abhor 
what is evil, to hate it. And so the opposite of love is not hate, according to Paul here. In fact, part of love is hate. If we love God, that means we hate what God hates. Part of loving God is hating sin, hating it in ourselves, hating it in others. And so it may look like love to overlook our husband's shortcomings or our wife's struggles or our sons or our daughters or our friends, right? To, to ignore those things because we don't want to be that guy that confronts them. That might look like love, but the reality is, and Tim Keller says it this way, any love that is afraid to confront is not really love. Instead, it's a selfish desire to be loved. Because we don't want to rock the boat. Right? We've made an idol out of that person who we're afraid to confront. We're more interested in keeping things peaceful than in speaking the truth. That's actually selfishness. And many scholars, authors, even contemporary pop songwriters, they get this idea that the opposite of love is not hate. Actually, the opposite of love is indifference. It's not caring enough to say the truth or being so concerned with what others think of us that we're afraid to speak the truth. The opposite of love is being unwilling to confront problems and sins in one another. We studied Proverbs this semester in the youth group, and one of the topics that we discussed was godly friendships. We talked for two weeks about what the marks of true friendship look like. I want to share some of the Proverbs that we looked at. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So trustworthy wounds are wounds that come from a friend who is speaking the truth to us in love. And the verse just before this says, better is open rebuke, I lost my place, than hidden love. <laughs> and of course, there's the most famous, one of the most famous Proverbs of all in this same chapter, 27:17. iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Can you imagine, have you ever seen on television, on the History Channel, what it looks like for a blacksmith to use iron to sharpen iron? I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like just holding the two rods up kind of close to each other and letting them say hello, right? Letting them walk through the lobby and fist bump each other every now and then. That's not real love, right? Requires being willing to shape and to press and to scrape. And it, require, it requires being uncomfortable. It requires being willing to be shaped, to be pressed, to be scraped in love. So seniors... I want to ask you this morning, do you have a friend where you have this kind of relationship? You don't need a lot of them. In fact, I think they're very rare. They're very rare. You really only need one, a friend who speaks honest criticism into your life that you can receive and who you can speak honest criticism into. And church, I'd ask you the same. Who in your life is able to correct you? And I want to make a really important clarification this morning that this is not a license to call people out whenever we want to. Because a rebuke made without love is judgmental. It's evil. It's wickedness. 
Proverbs warns us of the power of our words in many places. One of them here in 1218, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So how do we walk this line and be this kind of friend? How do we speak truth wisely with love and walk this, this difficult balance? There's two things that I want to look at in answering this question of how do we speak truth in love. And the first is that it starts with a heart that must be transformed by the gospel and continuing to transform. And that's really Paul's very next point. As he goes on, what we've already talked some about, loving what is good and hating what is evil. So what we're talking about this morning is we can't stay in a place where we're like, look, I don't really love doing this. It's hard for me. I'm not really into it, but I'll try. I'll try. I'll do it from time to time, God, because I know it's what you want. That's not good enough. The reality is God does not want our grudging obedience. He wants us to love his commandments. Psalm 119 says this twice, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And later in 143, Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. To get the balance of truth and love correct and to have a real love for God's commandments, an ongoing prayer for all of us must be, God, help me to love you more and hate my sin more. These two things, they happen together. The only way we are going to grow in our hatred of our sin is by growing in our love for the Lord. And we can't just quit sin cold turkey. You may have heard this, whether you're dealing with an addiction or a habit, just something that you want to stop. You can't just cut it out of your life. You have to replace it with something new. Literally in the Greek here, Paul is saying, glue ourselves inseparably to good. Glue ourselves inseparably to the Lord, to his words, and to his commands. And the only way we do that, Paul says in verse 1 of this chapter, it's by the mercies of God. God alone opens this path to us. Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then right here in verse 11, Paul says, we must not be slothful in zeal, but rather fervent in spirit. Literally in the Greek, we must be boiling over with the spirit, like a pot that's overflowing. And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this passage. He says, we can't create the fire. We don't create the fire. We can only stir the coals. The Holy Spirit who lives in us is the source of this love for others and this love for God's commands. And so the first step is accepting the gospel. And the dawning of the gospel in our hearts is like a floodlight that exposes the wickedness in us. And that is a lifelong process. As we walk in the humility of the gospel, we will encounter deeper and more hidden recesses of brokenness in ourselves that need to be given over to the Lord. And the more we can acknowledge our own brokenness, discover it, the more we'll be able to love the lost, love the broken, even the unlovable. 
The only way we do that is by more of the Lord. So first comes accepting the gospel, and then second is the regular stirring of those coals. The renewing of our minds with the gospel consistently, regularly, each day, in moments of conflict. These mercies of God that Paul says are the only way for us to live like this. These mercies of God, they have to be before us. They have to be in front of our face all the time. The only way we can speak truth in love to the unlovable is if the gospel is ever in front of us. So what does the gospel tell us? We're not loved by God because of how lovable we are. We're not loved by God because we're so great. We're not loved by God because we deserve it. Christ died for us despite a total, complete lack of love toward him on our part. We were dead in our sins. So can we keep that fact ever before us in our hearts and minds? Recall it in times of conflict when someone else has upset us, right? It might look something like a prayer, something like this. Lord, how much more I wronged you than this person has ever wronged me. You were tortured and killed for me. And all this person is asking for is a little of my time, a little of my effort. Help me to give it to them. Paul goes on, he says, when we do this, we become devoted to one another with brotherly affection. That's what he calls us to. Be devoted to one another with brotherly affection. In other words, this genuine love, when we practice it, it produces bonds like family. And I think we get the, the, special, the, the special case that family bonds are. Now, we're all broken sinners, and many of our families are broken. But nonetheless, there's a special kind of bond that exists in a family, right? Your son may be rebellious. He may walk away from the faith. He may hate your beliefs. He may want nothing to do with you. But at the end of the day, he is still your son, there's still something tying you to him. It's a core part of his identity. One of the deepest things you can know about him, part of what makes him who he is, is the fact that he's your son. That is the kind of bond we make with one another as fellow believers. I think the point here is that this is a type of love that we have for one another that says, I'm never going to write you off. It may require my distance for a time physically, Right? We may need to separate for some time, but I'm never going to write you off even if you write me off. I'm never going to stop caring. I'm never going to stop praying. Here's one of the main points I want you to see this morning. This kind of love is sacrificial. So if you look at verse 12 with me, Paul says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. All of these things here, they have to do with loving under difficult circumstances. Y'all see that? We're not talking about loving people that are easy to love. He goes on to say, bless those who persecute you. What do we mean by persecution? Those who take unjust, malicious, unwarranted, selfish, evil action toward us. That's, that's, that's what we're meaning by persecution here. And, and what does Paul say to do? Bless them. It's tempting to think that Paul here means some kind of far-off, sort of proverbial heathen, like a Satanist that lives far in the distance that we never actually have to interact with, and we're like, yeah, we, we're going to love that person, right? 
And of course, that's important. We're called to love that person. But it's not just that person that Paul's talking about here, that person that's never going to enter our social circles. Instead, Paul's talking about that person on Facebook. He's talking about the person that regularly makes political posts or tweets that we don't agree with, that we think are downright evil. He's talking about loving the person in your Sunday school class who always disagrees with you. We're talking about acting with love towards someone even when we're not being treated the way we want to be. And thankfully, Paul gives us some some great practical examples of how we show this genuine sacrificial love. Okay, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. And remember, God isn't calling us to anything that he hasn't done for us already on a greater scale than we can really even imagine. Right? Jesus gave up honor. Jesus left his throne in heaven, humbled himself, lowered himself by taking on the form of man and entering into our world. Can we love in a way that gives up honor? As I thought about what it means to outdo one another in showing honor, I couldn't help but think about my mom. My mom loved to serve. Okay, anyone who knew her would say she had the gift of hospitality. She was the kind of mom who who was always feeding you, always asking if you were hungry or thirsty, if you needed anything. Right? I'd I'd visit the house, and before I even realized I was hungry, there'd be a five-star sandwich in front of me, just a pier. And if you had a drinking cup and you're over there, like you you had to guard that thing. Because if you left for like 20 seconds, it'd be swooped up and in the dishwasher. But if you mentioned it, you'd have another glass in your hand before you even finished your sentence. But I want you to see, it's not what she did that made her hospitable and made her honoring. It's how she did it. She made you feel perfectly natural about her serving you. Like, you deserved her service. Like, you, it was her absolute joy to be serving you, which I believe it really was. But that was the true secret to her gift of hospitality. She made you think that you weren't asking something big of her. In fact, really just the opposite. You were giving her an opportunity to do what she loved. That's why I had zero reservations about her driving three hours both ways to College Station and back when I got that flesh-eating amoeba in my eye. The first thing I did was call her. I had taken a final And I'd fallen asleep with my contacts in, so I woke up in a little bit of a rush, and my eyes were hurting, so I decided I'd wear my glasses. And since I was in a hurry, I took my contacts out in the shower. I used shower water in my contact case. I put them on later, woke up the next morning, and I literally could not look at light. There was just like a tiny bit of light coming through my blinders, and it was like searing pain in my right eye to look anywhere in that direction. And so I called my mom, and I don't even remember the exact conversation, but it was something along the lines of, I'll be there in no time. Go back to sleep. And she came. She drove me to an eye appointment. And that doctor there in College Station, he was like, there's one or two things this could be. It's either a corneal abrasion, scrape on your eye, happens all the time. It might be this really rare flesh-eating amoeba since you put your contact in shower water. He was like, there's three microscopes in the world that can see it, and one of them's in Dallas. So I went to Dallas. Sure enough, that's what it was. And they told me there, like, if you had waited any longer, you would have probably lost sight. 
Okay, there's, there's scarring on my eye, but it's not anywhere near my cornea. And so my mom's hurry and that doctor saved my eyesight in my right eye. Can we serve one another and help one another in such a way that we make the person think it is our absolute honor to be helping them so that they don't feel like a burden? They, aren't, they don't feel like we're holding something over their heads or that there's a favor now that they're going to have to repay us for. Right? Can we love and serve with such honor that that person thinks they've done us the favor because really that's what's happening. Every opportunity to help another person that we carry out without seeking our own recognition, our Father in heaven sees that and will reward us for. So can we help others in such a joyous, honoring way that they'd have zero reservations about asking us to help them again? Where, where they feel like we're simply fulfilling our calling on this earth by serving them. Because really that's what we're doing. If we can be Christians who honor others like that, then we will be a church that operates the way Methetes describes Christians in the second century. When he says this, you can read along with me. He says, they love all and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So these three things that Paul tells us what we have to do, these three difficult things if we're going to love others. The first one that he says, rejoice in hope. What he's saying here is that our joy, what we can rejoice in, it's not in our success at all this. It's not in how well we do this. It's not in how well we love others. It's not even, our ultimate joy is not even in transformed lives. It's not even in people accepting Christ. It's not even in sins being defeated. Those are wonderful things that bring us great joy. But success comes and goes. And when we don't meet with success, it doesn't shake our confidence if our true hope is in Christ's return, his guaranteed return, his promise. That's our one constant source for joy in the midst of the difficult struggle to live this way and to treat others this way. What we can rejoice in is the hope we have in Christ's return. Then Paul says, be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. And the way we keep the mercies of God before us, the way that we reroute ourselves in the gospel, the way we remind ourselves how much greater we've wronged God than any person could ever wrong us, that's through prayer. And this, this idea that we must be patient in tribulation, that's a scary one. So what he's saying is things will go wrong in your life. That's why we must be patient in tribulation. Any imaginable hardship can come our way at any moment. And are we really surprised? Are we surprised when life is hard? When we lose a loved one 
or a loved one walks away from the faith, or when we're betrayed by a friend, or when we love someone difficult and we do it well, but there's zero ground gained. Are we surprised when these hard things happen? We aren't if we look at our Savior's life. Jesus' sufferings show us how to perform, how to act out this kind of love. Jesus' incredibly difficult life proves we can love others and even find joy in the midst of all the difficulties that we're going to face, but only in him and only with his help. That joy, that love comes from him. So lastly here, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In other words, put your money where your mouth is, right? Be generous. Give. Give wisely. Think about who you're giving to, but give. Because God gave us his son. He gave his son's life for us. Can we give in light of what we've been given Lastly this morning, how do we love all with love that's genuine, with love that's sacrificial, with love that is lowly, love that is humble? Let's look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And that is the call to the Christian the perspective that we are to have of ourself. We've already discussed how Jesus did this for us, right? Lowering himself, taking on the form of man, entering into our world. The reality, this is really what the entire book of Proverbs, it's the disposition that we're to have as Christians. It's what Proverbs is all about. Defines biblical wisdom as being able to be wrong being able to be gentle toward others who don't have our experience, being able to put ourselves in the shoes of others. Proverbs is filled with verses that say this. We got to look at some of them with our youth group, some fun ones, some obscure ones that still say this. I want to share some of these with you. Proverbs 25, 20. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Proverbs 27, 14. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. It's one of my favorite. What are we saying here? Read the room. Be empathetic. Tie your heart to others in such a way that you feel their sorrow and you feel their joy. Keller goes so far as to say, a true friend cannot be truly happy when their friend is sorrowful. We are not haughty. We are not arrogant. We are not prideful. We associate with the lowly because that's who we are. All of us are low before our holy God. We are all poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what he means is, blessed are those who recognize their poor in spirit and know they need help, know they need a savior. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're all poor in spirit. The only thing that separates us, a believer, 
from a non-believer is the mercies of God. Remember that. Can we remember that? Can we keep that ever in front of us? If we're trying to love someone, I want to make one, two more quick points here. If we're trying to love someone who needs to hear truth, okay, and that person doesn't feel heard, they don't feel listened to, they don't feel like we're getting their perspective, if that person doesn't feel valued by you, you are in very risky territory. Okay, if conceit, if pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, if those things are being used to describe your attitude, even by that person, but certainly by others involved in the situation. Paul's saying right here, that means you are not loving. You are failing to love this way. Jesus suffered on the cross in part to teach us how to love. Genuine love is hard. It will hurt Only with the gospel at the center of our identity can we love those who don't deserve it. Treating others this way starts with finding our hope and our joy in the wonderful truth that Christ is returning. Justice is promised. Evil will be done away with forever. And so our job in the meantime is to win people over to Christ with our love, love that bubbles out of us as we devote ourselves to the God who loves us so much. He put all of this that we're talking about this morning on display for us. He did it all for us. He loves you genuinely like a true best friend who is making you into the best version of yourself by calling you to more. He loves you sacrificially, laying down his life for you. He's lowered himself more than we can even appreciate or understand. As Christians, we get to serve a God who has done what he calls us to, who enables us to do it through his Holy Spirit, and who loves us and forgives us and sticks with us through our failures and our weaknesses and our betrayals. Can we be people who go out and do the same for the world? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the ways you reveal your love to us in it. And Lord, as we consider the weightiness of loving those who are unlovable, we just pray that you would keep us thinking rightly of ourselves. Because we're unlovable. Help us to know that. Help us to believe that. Gently show us, continue to reveal in us our own brokenness. Use it to humble us and use it to make us lights for your kingdom. Use it to make us people who are able to speak in to brokenness in a loving way, in a way that builds bonds, in a way that builds ties, in a way that brings people in. Father, I pray that 
you would help us be Christians who are anti-culture and who are out in the world turning around our world's view of Christians. Help us in the way that we love to combat this narrative that Christians are self-righteous. Father, help us to be people who love the unlovable. Help us to be people who are able to look first to ourselves, first to our own brokenness. And then know in light of your love for us, it's easy. It's a joy. It's a gift to get to share that love with others. And Lord, in times of difficulty with difficult people, when you are furthest from our thoughts, Holy Spirit, remind us of the gospel in those moments. Help us to be able to keep the gospel ever in front of us. Grow us in our love for you as you grow us in our hatred of sin. We ask these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.